Well, last week we were thinking about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. If you remember the first fruits of his time, the three years that he had, given devoted to his father in prayer in the wilderness. Since that moment, he has called disciples to be with him. Peter and James and John have left behind their fishing boats. They have walked with Jesus. They've eaten with Jesus. They've lived with Jesus. They've listened to Jesus in wonder as he told stories of God and his kingdom. They've looked on Jesus in astonishment as he's healed the sick and he's raised that young girl from her deathbed. They've worked for Jesus in growing ore, handing out countless rolls and uh, fish for a crowd of thousands from just that, the, just that little sandwich, those couple of rolls and those few fish that Jesus blessed. They've gazed at Jesus in fear as he's walked towards them across the lake through the storm. At each point they thought they knew Jesus and they discovered that somehow they'd never really seen him or understood him. And then Jesus goes on retreat with them to the north of the country, to Caesarea Philippi. And it's as if he changes gear. He starts by asking them a little question, kind of question that retreat leaders like to ask their, you know, people who come and join them. A little sort of warm-up question. Um, who do you say I am? Talk amongst yourselves. Some little groups, okay? Think about it. Who do people say that I am? And as they're kind of coming back with some answers, okay, and, and what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? Think about it. And you remember that Peter comes out with that amazing acclamation, that, that statement of commitment and faith. You are the Messiah, God's chosen, anointed leader of Israel. Wow. And so, Jesus picks up on that. And he begins to teach them about the inner meaning of his Messiah ministry. Not just to be a great healer and a miracle worker. Not to take over the priestly system and to purify the temple. Not to evict Herod and even Caesar and restore Israel and the people of God to their rightful place as, uh, as the rulers of the world, but instead to be rejected, to suffer, to be killed, and to rise again from the dead. Now, Peter didn't even hear that last phrase, that one about resurrection. And even if he had, he wouldn't have been able to understand it. He is so taken up with the first bit of the phrase, he's outright, outraged by this, this suggestion that the Messiah will suffer and die. What? You, the Messiah, suffer and die? Surely not. That's not what happens to the Messiah. The Messiah rules. Other people die. But Jesus rebukes him. And to rub salt into Peter's wounds, 
his wounded pride, Jesus starts saying the same to the crowd that is drawn around him. Do you want to follow me? Then you need to pick up your own heavy cross, put it on your shoulders, drag it after you, and follow me to humiliation and death. If you want to save your life, you're going to have to be ready to lose it. So reckon it up. Is it better for you to have a good job, to have a lovely house and garden and family, to have assets and a pension, to have holidays in the sun and respect and prestige, and yet to lose your inner soul, to lose life with God, to lose an eternity of joy in the Father's presence. Make your choice. Jesus says, I will be carrying my cross for you. Will you be ashamed of me as I do that? If so, then you will cause me to be ashamed of you when you have died and we stand together at the judgment throne of the Father. Will you be the one who says, I, I wish I'd spent more time in the office and made more money? Or will you wish that you had followed me despite the pain, the shame, and the embarrassment? Well, I guess that probably wasn't the best sermon for winning friends and influencing people and drawing a following. Almost certainly there was a Twitter storm that followed that and the crowd started to seep away. How do you suppose that Peter and James and John felt at that moment? Confused? Irritated? Disappointed? Listen, Jesus, we said you were the the Messiah and you, as good as, agreed with us. And now what are you doing? You've just demotivated and de-inspired your army. What was that all about? They could not get what Jesus was saying about the Messiah. They couldn't fathom the implications for Jesus, for themselves, for Israel, for the Roman world. They couldn't see who Jesus really was. And so in the next chapter, the chapter that follows our reading this morning, six days later, Jesus gives them a glimpse. Jesus took Peter and James and John with them and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And they were terrified. They may not have understood any clearer than before what kind of Messiah Jesus would be, but they absolutely knew that he was not just some party political leader, not even a charismatic national leader, not even a world power like Caesar. This was indeed the Messiah, dazzling with God's light and his power and his glory. They saw him, but they still didn't understand him. So the Heavenly Father is very kind to them, And he speaks to them directly. He says, this 
is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Can you imagine how that would have been if you had been there? If you had heard God Almighty, the Heavenly Father, speaking audibly to you and saying, this Jesus is my son whom I love. Listen to him. I think I would be responding, yes, yes, absolutely, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I didn't believe him, I'm sorry I doubted him. I, 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 I believe in him, I trust him now, sorry. They saw him, they heard the Father speak of him, but they still didn't really understand him. I don't know if you remember the start of Luke's gospel. Zachariah is serving in the temple and he sees an angel. And he doesn't believe what the angel says to him. And the angel says to him, in effect, I stand in the presence of God. I think I know what I'm talking about. And goes on to say, in effect, I don't want you talking about your misunderstandings until you really understand what I'm talking about. So you've got nine months to figure it out. Keep quiet, do some thinking and praying, and then when you've understood what I'm saying, then you can talk to people about it. I think Jesus is doing something similar here with the disciples, with Peter and James and John. Already in our passage on the retreat, when Peter has said, you're the Messiah, Jesus has said to them, don't speak to anybody about this. And now coming down from the mountain, he says the same thing. Don't say anything about it until I have risen from the dead. You've seen my face, you've seen my glory, but you still don't understand how I'm the Messiah. So don't talk about it until you do. But during the transfiguration, this moment on the mountain, he's given them two clues. Firstly, you'll remember that Elijah and Moses were there with him. Moses and Elijah, the, the law and the prophets. So that's a clue, the fulfillment of scripture. So read the scriptures. And the second clue is, it's something about my resurrection. And at some point, on the road to Emmaus, or in the upper room, or by the lake, those two are going to come together. Scripture and its fulfillment, and Jesus' resurrection, and they're going to understand how they fit together. They're going to... They're going to see how glory, Jesus' glory is most evident on his cross. They're going to understand how raising up the people of God into the Father's presence comes through Jesus' own self-sacrifice. 
on their behalf. And then they will really see him. They will understand what kind of a Messiah he is. They'll, they'll know what kind of a cross it is that they need to pick up for him and why. Meanwhile, they need to keep quiet until they've worked it out. But at least they've gained a, a clearer glimpse of his face. So, how about us? Have you come across Jesus? Have you encountered him? If not, well, why not read this Gospel of Mark that we read this passage from today? Just read it through this afternoon. It'll only take you two or three hours. And you'll get a much clearer sense of who Jesus is. Most of us, I guess, have already done that. We've already seen that Jesus. We've seen, we've looked into his face. We've seen what kind of a Messiah, a Savior he is for us. And we've been following him now for a good few years, I guess. But have we really, really seen his face? Have we really understood who he is? Are we getting closer to him day by day? Well, it may be that even after all this time, actually physically with Jesus, Peter and James and John still didn't really understand what Jesus, who, who Jesus was and, and, and had only seen a glimpse of his heavenly, the heavenly light in his face. But remember, they had already made a number of decisions to follow Jesus. They had helped him out as interested bystanders or lending their boats, you remember. They had um, come looking for him to hear what he had to say to them. They'd said yes when he'd called them to follow him as disciples. They had helped him in his ministry. They hadn't left him when the crowd had got fed up and gone its separate ways. They had stuck with him and they'd spoken up for him and they'd committed themselves to join him as their Messiah. And so they were present here with him in the retreat and on the mountain to catch this glimpse of his face. And despite all the grief and the confusion and the doubt, that, the disappointment that followed, they were still there with him when he appeared to them on the road to Emmaus and in the upper room and by the lake. And so all those choices day by day had brought them to a better understanding and a truer sight of his face. And it's going to be the same for us. Our own day-by-day -day decisions to be with Jesus, it's those that are going to, to help us, to bring us in the end to the same place. I spoke last week about bringing the cream of our day each day and offering it to Jesus just as he gave his own heavenly father the first fruits of his ministry time. But how, Michael, you might ask? I really do believe that prayer is the most important thing we can do. I've been making prayer a priority, ready for a joyful encounter with Jesus. I've carved out time. 
I've made a cup of coffee and sat down in a comfortable chair looking out on the lovely view of Guernsey. I've shut the door, I've switched off the phone, I've actually begun to pray. And before I know it, I'm idly daydreaming about my holidays off the island or wondering what to cook for supper tonight or, worst of all, getting into an unproductive, familiar loop of anger or bitterness or negativity. What can I do about that? Somebody asked me something quite similar in one of the house groups that I was privileged to be with you uh, this week. Well, if you find that your prayers are distracted by inner turmoil, you are absolutely not alone. Many of the great saints writing about prayer describe exactly that same kind of mental interruption. So today, just for a bit, I'm going to be really practical. I'm going to describe some of the main kinds of distraction that we face when we try and pray and offer some tips um, from the saints for defeating them. And the first classic description, sorry, distraction is drowsiness. We start to pray and then we start to fall asleep. Okay, this is absolutely typical. It's typical for a retreat or a quiet day and often just for our time of prayer in the morning. My immediate response to this is, don't worry, let yourself sleep. That's what your body needs. Sleep is really good for you, and then you will awake, refreshed, and ready to give time to the Lord. Well, I'm sure that's just what you wanted to hear. These days, most of us live at such a fever pitch that our bodies are kind of really keyed up, and they're crying out for sleep. So the first thing we need to do as we set aside time to listen to God is to allow our bodies the sleep it needs. And then we can wake refreshed and listen with attentiveness. However, if we haven't got time for that because it's first thing in the morning and then we're off to work, or if we're not actually physically tired, it's just a kind of spiritual torpor, then we need to do something physical to wake ourselves up. Make that cup of tea or coffee. Go for a prayer walk along the cliffs or pace around the room whilst you're interceding. Saints have spoken of different of these kinds of physical activities to really to, to engage you physically and to get you going. You could write or paint or doodle as you pray. St. Paul kneels before the Lord to show his submission, but it also keeps him awake. Okay, so that's the first one, drowsiness. The second typical distraction is mental busyness. My head is so busy, stuff going round, 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 round. I can't stop and listen and concentrate on the Lord. So we have to quieten our minds, and then immediately we remember something that needs to be done. It's not a problem. It's just natural. It's what our minds are, are kind of trained to do for us. When we have nothing immediate to do, our mind takes the opportunity to bring forward the next important thing that we need to remember. Again, don't feel guilty about that. Just have a a pad and and, and pen beside you and just write, jot a note of the thing that you've thought about. Write it down, your mind will relax. And then after 10 minutes, Uh, Sorry, and then, of course, immediately your mind will think of the next important thing it had to think about, 
write that one down too, and the next, and the next. And after 10 minutes, you'll have a very useful list. And if you're still not able to relax, bring that list before the Lord and pray through it and consecrate and give those things to the Lord. Pray into those things which your mind is telling you are really important to you. Pray them through. Give them to the Lord. And as you do that, the, the problems, the emotions associated with them offered to the Lord, that will quiet your mind and they will stop bothering you. Okay? Third problem is just going blank. All right? I've got loads to pray about and I sit before the Lord I just can't think of anything. I can't think of anything to pray about. Okay? This is... This is classic too. It just happens. So three classic tips for bringing material with you to the Lord. Um, and, and the first is, read the Bible. Let God speak to you and pray as his spirit guides. So read the Bible. So a really good place to start as you stop to pray is to read some scripture. And God will speak out of that. Secondly, read the newspaper. Pray for the needs of the world around you. I find that the week is really helpful with this. I don't know about you guys, but um, I find that the week, with its little snippets of kind of news around the world, and its kind of focus on some of the major issues of the day, it's really helpful for reminding myself before the Lord, what are the important things for our world as I'm with the Lord in prayer? Others have prayer feeds on their phone from different organizations, which help them pray more widely and relevantly. Of course, the problem with prayer feeds is it means your phone is there with you, and that brings with it all sorts of other baggage. So you need to be really careful about that. You know, you read your scripture from, the, from your phone, you get your prayer feed, and then you need to set your phone aside, switch it off, or you know, switch off the notifications so that you can then concentrate. And thirdly, and this is a, a, a classic way of handling all of this, is to keep a prayer list. Lots of the great saints have had a list, you know, of things that they're praying about and, and those to whom they're committed. Um, I, I know that this is the case in our day. I'm, I, I heard Nicky Gumbel, um, leader of a big church in London, talking about his prayer list. And he, on the, other, on the other side of each page, which he filled up with prayer, had a blank page, which he would write in the kind of the answers to those prayers. Such an encouragement to see that God is answering prayers as we pray them. But you might just think, oh, well, this is just kind of, you know, a recent thing. I, I didn't bring it with me. I was going to bring it with me. I'm so moved to have in my possession. Somebody gave it to me. Um, and it's a little booklet translated from Greek and Hebrew, uh, written by a bishop in the 16th century. And it's his list, his jotting of lists of things that he was praying for day by day. It's so powerful. This is a man who is leading the church in his generation, and he, day by day he's coming before the Lord and he's noting the things that are really important to him from Scripture, from the world, and in his own private life. One of the things I particularly was touched by was that he was praying for the responsibilities he'd had in the past as well as the responsibilities he has right now. The people who he's had responsibility for. 
and those that he is seeking to work with now. And that's reminded me, I have a similar um, notebook in which I jot things down for the church, for the world, and so on. And I've written down a list of all the people that I have um, appointed around the country to ministry. So that reminds me to be praying for them. Not just once on the day when they were licensed, but day by day as their ministry continues. So keep a list. Wherever the prayer topics come from, then keeping a a notebook or a diary can be enormously helpful. Um, I, I used to use also a photo board Okay, in which I had photographs of people I really loved and people I cared about. And praying for, through them helped me to kind of really emotionally connect with them in my prayers and, and brought them visually and visibly and vividly uh, to life in my prayers. And I've started doing the same with those people that I have appointed as, as vicars. So I've got their faces there with me as well. Okay, fourth distraction, failing to focus on Jesus. Um, I guess many people wouldn't recognize this as a problem if their prayer life hasn't yet moved on from just praying for the things that they need or the things that other people need. But if we pray determinedly, at some point the Holy Spirit is going to let us know that because the Holy Spirit is the one who brings us to Jesus, that we need to start to lift our eyes to Jesus and contemplate him. The Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus and draws us to Jesus. But how? Again, there are some classic ways of doing this. The first is is, uh, praying your Bible reading. I kind of mentioned that before. Um, Here's a suggestion from Murray McShane, who was the great Scottish pastor evangelist. As you read your Bible passage... Turn every phrase or line into a prayer. Clearly, this is very easy for the Psalms. We heard Sarah taking us to the Psalm at the beginning of the service and kind of helping us to pray into those phrases, the sparrow and the swallow. But it works for virtually any, any phrase. Here are the first phrases of our two readings today. Finally, be strong in the Lord. Lord, I'm not feeling strong. I'm feeling very weak at the moment. Please let me be strong in your strength, not my own. In the Gospel reading, Jesus asked them, who do people say I am? Jesus, it feels like people have no clue who you are. Some think you're imaginary. Some think you're irrelevant. And some just actually hate you. Lord, please show them who you really are. You get the idea? Take your scripture, pray it in. And you may have come across Lectio Divina, which is a very old tradition of doing that, much older than Murray McShane, um, and involved reading through until a phrase catches your attention and then just praying that phrase over and over and over again until it really goes in. Be strong in the Lord. 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 And as you continue to pray, you you start going deeper into the truth of the phrase. Of course, this has been taken up by those of you who've got phones and use apps by uh, Lectio 365, 
who take you to a passage and then pray you through it in a daily app. So if you like, uh, if you like other people praying with you online, Lectio 365 is a great place to start. And then if you wanted to be even more focused, there's another old, very old prayer which takes just one phrase and then prays it through endlessly, through each day, again and again and again. By repeating it for hours and days and months, the, the phrase starts to kind of etch itself into your brain paths. And then you start to kind of hear that prayer in everything that you're doing. Of course, the phrase has to be pretty rich to sustain that kind of praying. The one I used to use was, Lord Jesus Christ, Lamb of God, have mercy on, my, on me, a sinner. You can see that each of those phrases has something very powerful to teach me. And as I pray it over and over again, maybe focusing on each different word at a different time, turning the whole thing into a different prayer, and yet reinforcing and reinforcing the same prayer, the name of Jesus above every name. And the fourth, um, oh no, I've got a couple more. Uh, a fourth idea, also old, this one comes from St. Ignatius of Loyola. If you're good at imagination, then you could pray one of these gospel readings. Just imagine yourself into the scene and then hear Jesus speaking to you. What is he saying to you? What does he want of you? If you're not so good at that, I'm not very good at that. I'm much better at, at looking at an object and, and meditating on that. Um, take something, a painting or a picture or something you can see out the window and then just watch it for a while and see what Jesus teaches us about ourselves, the world or himself through that object. You might think, oh, that's just a kind of gimmick, a recent, you know, sort of quiet day gimmick. No, Jesus uses this. His parables are, in effect, reflections on everyday objects that he sees around him. And, of course, the psalm, a thousand years before, does exactly the same thing. There's the swallow. There's the sparrow. What do they teach us about the Lord, about God? And finally, you could intersperse your prayer with worship. Sing old songs or hymns that are precious to you. I love to do that. I've, I've built myself a list of 12 hymns that I sang as a child, which are really deep down there for me, and yet theologically, they teach me together so much about Jesus. And the fifth and final, nearly at the end, the final distraction that we have in prayer is much more powerful. It's enemy attack. Even Jesus and St. Paul had trouble with this one. Just because you're a disciple of Jesus and are praying doesn't mean that the devil won't trouble you with temptations or accusations or demoralizations. Quite the opposite. It's been said that um, when the church is on its knees, then the devil flees. So you can imagine he wants to get the church off its knees before it's even begun and kind of undermine that right, right at the start. Well, here are two methods for resisting him that come from Jesus and from St. Paul. Well, first, from Jesus, we, we, we saw when he was in the wilderness. Okay, so last week's reading. So he's there in the wilderness, and the attacks come. What does he do? He quotes scripture back to the devil. 
He doesn't face out the devil. He quotes the word of God. And that's what routes the devil. That needs you to learn scripture so it's ready to hand. Okay, so there are lots of different techniques for learning scripture. Start learning scripture so you've got it in your hand. Like, like the armor that we, were talk- that we heard about in our first reading, if you've got the, 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 the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, if you've got that memorized and ready, you'll be able to use that powerfully. The second in that passage uh, from St. Paul is more about basic discipleship. It's about all those different bits of armor that we have in our pack as Christians. We need to put them on every day. We need to wear what we already have, what we already know. Truth, Christ's holiness, forgiveness, salvation, faith. As Christians, these are already ours but we need to use them against the enemy when he attacks us. And how do we do that? Of course, with prayer. So, five kinds of distractions, to all of which the great prayer warriors have been prone. But we can deal with them if we decide to. Drowsiness, do something physical. Mental busyness, write it down and leave it. Going blank, use some prayer material. Not focusing on Jesus, focus on Jesus Attacked by the enemy, resist him and he will flee from you. Prayer is hard work, but as we know, it is the most worthwhile labor in the world. And so as we keep struggling to bring ourselves into his presence, make him the focus of our prayers, he will certainly speak to us. Okay, let's wrap it up. Have you heard Jesus' challenge to you? Take, Take up your cross and follow me. Have you let him lead you up the mountain though you're struggling with grief and confusion? And have you let him show you his glory? And there have you heard God the Father speaking into your heart. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And have you understood Jesus' glory, the glory of the only son who sacrificed himself on the cross for you to bring you home to the Father's heart? And have you looked into his eyes? And have you seen his face? And have you heard him say to you, I love you, I forgive you, let go of your past life and allow me to change you. Let me carry you in your sorrow and let me make you holy, precious to the Father in his eternal life. Have you seen his face? As he looks down upon you tenderly, you will see tears of pity in his eye and smiles of joy. Shall we pray?